Listen, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking uh, and be in the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> Excuse me. A little bit of uh, information for you on the book of Ephesians. It was written by the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life, right? Um, he was a prisoner in Rome, um, and he wrote a few what they call the prison epistles, but uh, Ephesians was one of them. And so, Knowing this, here Paul is at the end of his life, or close to the end of his life. He's planted numerous churches all around uh, the known world at the time. He'd been on several missionary journeys. Uh, He'd already written many letters to many different churches, uh, a few of them we find in our scriptures. Uh, So he had this benefit of looking back over his life, Right, looking back over all his labor, his work, looking back over his experiences, along with uh, sitting in jail. Right, I mean, how much activity do you have when you're sitting in jail? So he's had a lot of time to think through and put these things together, and it's in that context that he writes the the letter to the book uh, to the church in Ephesus. Now. Uh, we know that it went initially to the church in Ephesus, but it was really designed to go from there and be spread around to the known churches that Paul had planted at the time. And he wrote the, the, the letter to the Ephesian church, uh, which was mature believers, or let me say the word maturing believers, because we're not ever completely mature, right? That's a, that's a false assumption that you reach pure uh, maturity. We're always growing. And and one of the things that the Chi Alpha students said was, uh, what was Chi Alpha 2? It's a journey, right? It's this journey through life with with people uh, who you love, who are like Christ, that you belong together and you make this journey together. So maturing Christians, he he wasn't writing this letter to non-Christians. He wasn't writing this letter to people who had just accepted Christ. He was writing this letter to a church of maturing Christians. And what he did was he intended to remind them of of God's work and his purpose for the church. And you go, as a pastor, I look at that and I think, well, Paul had already written many letters about what God had done and God's purpose for the church. Like, why did he write another one? Well, I know and you know that we often need reminders, right? Sometimes we forget uh, what God has done in our lives. Sometimes we forget his purposes for us. Sometimes we forget what God is doing and, and we just, life comes at us. And so Paul here takes all the teachings from all his books and all his letters. Well, to him, he wasn't writing books. Paul didn't sit down and say, I think I'm gonna write the book of Romans. Paul wrote letters and we made them books. So, all his letters and all of the thoughts in Ephesians you'll find in other letters he wrote, whether it be Romans or Philippians or Corinthians, or and he kind of summarizes it and makes it like one one big encouragement. Like if you went to a conference, it's very systematic. He starts here and he marches down through some ideas and he concludes to lead us to a place. And so. we're going to look at the book of Ephesians over the next couple of weeks and, and learn and remind ourselves 
a few things. So he intended to remind them of God's work and their purpose, but it was also meant as an encouragement. Ephesians is considered one of the most encouraging letters that Paul wrote. There's uh, other letters he wrote, like 1 Corinthians. It's, uh, it's a rebuke to the church in Corinth. He's like, hey, you need to get on the right track. Uh, we don't find that in Ephesians. It's pure encouragement, right? And uh, encouragement's a good thing, right? So we're going to look at, at that for those reasons as well. Now, I think the whole book can be summed up in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 18 in the first part of 19. He says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So he's talking about this hope. He's talking about this inheritance. He's talking about this power and that our eyes would be opened to these things in our life that's available to us. In these chapters, Paul reminds them, and he reminds us of God's work, or God's plan, and he reminds them of who they are. You say, well, that's interesting. What do you mean, who they are? And it's important for us to know who we are. You say, well, what do you mean? You see, what we do and how we live our life, all of your activity in life, conscious or unconscious, stems from what you believe about yourself, who you are. Oftentimes in sports they say uh, a player is not doing as well because he's lost, he or she has lost confidence. They don't know who they are a bit. They don't know that they have this great potential. They don't know that they have the skills. They don't know that they have this, this gift. They're, it's in question. They're wrestling with something inside, and all of a sudden, they, you know, they start to, their performance starts to drop because they're wrestling with who they are and their abilities. It's the same with us in all of life. We need to know who we are. What you believe about yourself will determine what comes out out of your mouth, uh, out of your, the work of your hands, the actions you do, everything. And so it's important for us to know who we are. And that's a wonderful thing because the first three chapters of Ephesians deals with who we are. Now, in Ephesians 1, it mostly talks about what God has done. And that's an important first step because uh, we are who we are because of what God has done. Right, And so, um, I find a crisis of identity uh, in the general world, but specifically in, in the church big letter C, meaning the church in general, not just faith assembly. This belief of who am I? When, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I said yes, whether through a prayer at the altar, what did I sign up for, so to speak? What what did that do in me? Who, what does that mean? And you see, it's important for us to know that because then the activities that you involve yourself in, you can determine, well, that's not who I am. No, no, that, that, that is who I am. And we involve ourselves accordingly. So, we're going to look this morning and ask the question, who are we? 
And in the first three books of Ephesians, uh, Paul, Paul lays that out. He lays out four things uh, that we are. Um, and I'm anxious to look for it. I was excited studying about this because uh, it's important to remember. So, uh, all of these statements are going to be out of Ephesians chapter 2. And then we're going to look, jump around to, to find support for those. And each one of these who we are statements that Paul says in Ephesians can be backed up in other letters he wrote. So we're going to turn to each one of those letters and see uh, where he either taught about that in a, bigger dis- in, a bigger, in a deeper way or a broader way or any of those kinds of things. So first one, Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 4. Paul writes this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, we're going to press pause. I don't know about you, I can open my Bible sometimes and read, and I'm looking at like the whole chapter, what did he say? And sometimes I can skip over little three words that mean a lot, right? You can just kind of keep reading. And that would be the, the challenge or the temptation here. But I want us to stop because it describes the very first thing that you are. Because of his great love for us. The first and number one thing that you are that is the most important to remember is that you are loved. You're loved. We, we, we find this all throughout Scripture. If I started to look at all the verses about how God loves us, we would be here the rest of the morning just on this. But probably the first Bible verse you ever learned as a kid, if you, or even as a parent, uh, adult, I mean, was John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So he's... Scripture tells us that God was motivated by love for us, so that we are loved. Now, I have felt a lot of things in my life, and I've run into a lot of people who feel unloved because of the the behaviors of their past or their present. They say, I don't know how God could love me. I have failed him. I have done this. I have done that. Uh... I am fill in the blank. Um, certainly, God could not love me. And here's where Paul addresses this, and he writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. And he writes this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing under the heavens, and guess what, even in the heavens, because heavens are part of the creation, that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. No bad day, no bad decision, right? Nothing. God doesn't wake up. You don't walk, walk in one day and God goes, oh, you failed again. Get out of here. I don't want to see you. That never happens with God. It happens with people. 
right? Because we're imperfect. But it does not happen with God. Nothing can separate us. There's, I wonder if there's anything that we can qualify in nothing. Like, is there anything that there's a loophole? Because last time I checked, nothing was just nothing. So any excuse that you may have in your mind or your heart of why you're not lovable to God is a lie. Put there by, I mean, it's the devil who doesn't want you to understand the love of God. But, uh, but God, the devil used somebody or some situation or some circumstance to communicate to you that you're no longer lovable <clears throat> or you never were. It's a lie. And it's important for you and for me to know, first and foremost, who am I? I am loved by God. No questions, not up for debate. You're loved by God. You're like, well, I really screwed up. Okay. Doesn't mean you're not loved by God anymore. You say, well, I'm really screwing up my life currently. Okay. We could talk about that, but that doesn't mean you're not loved by God anymore. It doesn't mean you are loved regardless of what you do. And can I, I'll go down, even if you renounce God, he still loves you. Even if you ball your fist and say, I want nothing to do with you, I hate you. He's like, I still love you. I mean, anyone who's a parent has probably at some point had your kids tell you they hate you. They don't want to, if you're new parents or you have younger kids, I'm sorry, like, just prepare yourself. At some point, (laughs) at some point, your kid's not going to like you. It hurts a little bit right here. You're like, but you don't understand how much I love you. You're like, I don't want to, you know, usually in the like 12 to 16 year old range. But even, even if you tell God you hate him and you walk away and you don't want anything to do with him and he loves you. There's nothing. You remember, there's nothing. The Apostle Paul went around putting church people in prison and justifying and okaying their murders. He's the one who writes this. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Who are you? You're loved by God. Baseline. Now, let's move on to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Right? So we said we are loved by God. We were, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Probably, you know, the, the biggest preaching point in Christendom is who am I? I am saved. I'm saved. Now, I don't want to just leave you hanging there. Saved from what? Saved. From what? Uh, Again, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, it says this, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified as with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. This was Paul's writing again to the Romans about salvation. So when he makes this statement that you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So faith in Christ equals salvation. So, saved from what? Well, 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul wrote this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. First thing you were saved from, you were saved from death to life. And I need to pause here for a moment because we got to understand something about salvation. Uh, oftentimes, uh, at least in the circles I grew up in, um, God was viewed as, as uh, judge and, and savior. And that God was coming to send people to hell or send some people to heaven. Um, John chapter 3, verses 16 said God sent his son to save the world. Verse 17 says he did not send him to condemn it, but to save it. Here's the point I'm making. The world is already dead. Now we're not talking physically, we're talking spiritually. So, on, on Jesus came to give life to those who want it. He, he, this is an important distinction to understand because he's coming to, he's on a rescue mission. He's not on a mission to find bad people and put them in hell. Okay? So God's not, God's not sending just, hey, go down there and find out the really bad apples and weed those out and throw them in hell. That's, that's not what Jesus is doing. God says, listen, the entire humanity is dead and going to hell. Go save as many as you can. That's Jesus' mission. It's a big difference when you view a loving God or an unloving God because an unloving God just sends people to hell. But a loving God comes and rescues people who are already on their way there. So you are saved God loved you. He came down and he found you and he, he wooed you and he made himself known to you until you said yes. And now you're saved. You've been, you've been saved from condemnation. You were, that's why he says you were brought, you were saved from death to life. We were already dead. Those who don't have a faith in Jesus Christ are like, are like flowers who've been cut off at the stem. They look pretty for a while, but they're fading. Eventually, death comes. And so, he came to save us, to reconnect us, to graft us back into the vine so that we could have life. So we were saved from death to life, which means uh, a lot of things. And not only were we saved from the spiritualness of that, we were also saved from the acts that lead to death. Look at verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So not only were we saved spiritually from life to death, we were saved from, from acts, uh, behaviors that lead to death. And then the, the most uh, 
um, prominent one, we were saved from the wrath of God. Because Scripture tells us at Judgment Day, God's wrath against all of those who, who worked against him, who rejected Jesus Christ, uh, will pay the consequences, which is what Paul's saying here, we were deserving of wrath by our behavior and by who we were. So he saved us from that. So, so often when I grew up, I was, the focus was, oh, I'm, I'm oh, saved from hell, I'm going to heaven, thank goodness. And that was the only focus. I'm not going to hell, I have fire insurance. Right? But it's so much more than that. He saved you from death, from, from a mindset of death, from, a, from actions of death, from behaviors of, that lead to death, from death itself, which, ha, which is no purpose, right? Deception, selfishness, uh, the power of sin in our life. He saved us from all of that to lead us into life, into thinking life, to acting like life, to, to stepping into life, to having a purpose, to having a, a reason to live. He saved us from the old and gave us that. That's what it means in being saved from death to life. It's not just, hey, I'm not, on judgment day, I'm not going to hell. I'm just buying my time until that day. That's If that's what you were taught and raised to, to believe, I, I challenge you that there's so much more to your salvation than that. There's life here on earth that God wants you to live and live to your fullest in him. So who are we? We're loved by God. We are saved from death to life. I think those are, if you've been in church in any any period of time in your life, those are two things that I hope you have heard spoken. The third thing we see here in Ephesians chapter 2 is going to be in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This one actually got me uh, the most excited in my study time. Because uh, God opened um, just a, a, my understanding of, of this scripture. So it says, we are God's handiwork. What in the world is handiwork? Like, so I had to look in the original language, like, what is handiwork? What is, what is that? And it's, you know what it is? It's a product. The product. So, so, so the nice back here, that's the handiwork of Jim, Gregory, and Josh Connell. That's their handiwork. The handiwork of Gregory and Connell. A few others, right. But, but, but we could say that's their handiwork. And it's on display. We can see their handiwork. That's their product of their efforts. So we're God's handiwork. When we get saved and we have faith in Jesus Christ, we become the handiwork of God. As we allow God to do his work within us and to transform us, we become the product. Well, for what purpose? What is, and this is, this is where I, I came to understand this. The word handiwork, the original word written in the Greek, 
only shows up in Scripture twice. It shows up, this is one. The other place it shows up is in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That word has been made is the same Greek word as handiwork. So you could read it, uh, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from his handiwork. Now this is the cool part to me. Uh, What is God's handiwork? Creation. This is what Paul's talking about, right? Creation is the handiwork of God. And what else is the handiwork of God? We are. So guess what? God's invisible qualities are clearly seen through his handiwork. Which is creation and you and me. So how does the world know an unseen God so that they're without excuse? Through seeing his work, his handiwork. Creation and you and me. You're the handiwork of God. Like, huh, that's interesting, Pastor, right? Scripture is interesting. The world around us that is far from God, they understand who God is and the nature of God by looking at what He does through His work. And if you allow God to do His work in you, the world around sees the handiwork of God through you. And then they understand his invisible qualities, his nature, based on his product and the work he's done. I'm not going to, today we're not going to get into the work that we do. That's for next, sun, next week. We're focusing today on who are we. But when, you, when we realize that we are loved by God, and that we are saved from death to life, and we give ourselves to that life, God works within us. We become his masterpiece, and we're on display for the rest of the world to see of what God can do with a life yielded to him. We become a city on a hill, a light that's not put under a bushel. That's where all these analogies come from. This is who you become, You become the handiwork of God, like a candle in the darkness that everybody can see. And it's not a matter of, am I this, am I that? No, you are that. It is who you are. I am loved. I am saved. I am a masterpiece of God. You say, well... You know, Pastor, I'm just, you know, this masterpiece doesn't look like another masterpiece sitting across the room from me. Say, well, this, this is the whole journey piece. We slowly got, right, the, God works in us. He takes this, I mean, honestly, I love watching some of those, uh, this is way off my notes, but I love watching like American Pickers, those little antique stuff, and uh, especially American Restoration they take some people bring in this like broken down, junky old 
piece of machinery from 100 years ago, and you're like, I want it to work. And the guy's like, all right, three grand, I'll make it work. He's like, okay. Gives it, comes back, and the thing looks like it just came off the showroom floor. He restores it. He polishes it. He paints it. He gets the gears working again. He, right? And you're like, whoa, that's amazing. That's so cool. God, God was the original restoration. He takes these junky old, broken down lives, and he makes them new again which is the next scripture that Paul, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he said this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. He says, listen, in Christ, the death part's gone. I'm wiping that away from your life. I'm wiping away the actual death, the thoughts that lead to death, the actions that lead to death, the smell of death. I'm getting rid of all of it out of your life. Our point is the willingness, right? The willingness. Do we, want, do we want him to make us new or do we want to hold on to some of the death because it's familiar? The point is this. God is working in us and through that work in us, we display the invisible qualities of God. We become his masterpiece. We become his work on display. I don't know about you, but I like to go through and work in galleries, uh, Smithsonian, uh, art institutes, right? We like to, you just go, man, this, this person's creativity on display for everyone to see, and everyone gets to en- enjoy that. Well, you're God's masterpiece on display for all to see. Honestly, it's whether you like it or not, but, you know, some of you introverts are like, no, no, don't put me on display. (laughs) Extroverts are like, yeah, yeah, we're on display, but God wants to put you on display. So we are loved by God. We are saved. We are his handiwork or his masterpiece. And the last thing that Paul talks about here in Ephesians is in Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 16. He says this, He himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I'm jumping to verse 19. Consequently, therefore, because of this, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. What is Paul saying with? Paul is saying that God has done away with the divisions and created one body, the body of Christ. You see, there were huge divisions after Christ uh, returned to heaven. Jews who believed in him were like, oh, no, 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 no. You still got to follow the Moses laws. Yes, faith in Jesus is important, but you have to 
you know, do the whole circumcision and feasts and festivals and sacrifices. Jesus is just part of that. And the Gentiles are like, no, we're not doing any of that craziness. We were given the Holy Spirit at, when, when, when we said yes to Christ, just like you have the Holy Spirit. And, and they had this fighting. You need, to, you need to do all the works law. No, we don't. No, we, and there was this huge turmoil that you read about in Scripture. And Paul writes and says, hey, in Christ, he broke down the wall of hostility between us. And in himself, he created one new body. What's the criteria for being part of the body of Christ? We saw that actually in verse 13 before he got into all of this. It says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's through the blood of Christ we're saved, right? It's through the blood of Christ God's love for us was demonstrated. It's through the blood of Christ. So through the blood of Christ, we're all brought near together to create one body. So it's the blood of Christ which is the qualifier. And so, say, what do you mean, Pastor, about that? What's the criteria for being a part of this body? The criteria is, is that you are trusting in that the blood that Christ spilled on the cross is enough to cover your sins and restore your relationship with God. So through faith in that, you have a, a, a relationship with God. The blood of Jesus Christ, see? Cleansed you of your sin, you stand right before God, you will escape wrath on judgment day. That's the criteria for being part of the body of Christ. Which, hallelujah, amen, yes, we agree. <clears throat> until we run into divisions in the church. Right? Right? We see people who worship different, talk different, think different, look different. We go, ah. And then all of the religion stuff starts getting weird that creates problems. But Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians. He wrote about it to the Romans as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, he explains it to them as this. Just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Let me pause here. I used to hear this teached and preached, or taught and preached, sorry for all you English people, um, that he was talking about the local church. We're one body here. We have different gifts within our body, and that forms the body of Christ. That's not the context Paul's talking about. He's, he's talking about the whole body of Christ. He's not talking about the body of Christ at 154 Bruce's Way or the body of Christ in California or the body of Christ. He's talking about the entire body of Christ here. Just as the body, the one, has many parts, all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized, here he's, the, here he's in the criteria, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. 
And then in verse 27, he said this, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So we, Paul's saying that we are part of a larger body, that you are a member of Christ's body, the big C church in general, that you have a huge family out there, that even though you're a new creation in Christ, the old is gone, the new is here, in that newness, you belong to a, to a big a big body of Christ, a big church, people who call on the name of Jesus Christ, and that looks different. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, he said this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and this part is the, is the part that always gets me. And each member belongs to all the others. I, I like to think of that, of, of people belonging to me. But I often don't like to think of me belonging to somebody else, unless it's my wife. Like, right? Like, oh, I belong to them. Like, huh, that means I have some responsibility, some accountability. That's for next week, sorry. I'm jumping ahead of myself. The point is, is that all of us who call on the name of Jesus Christ and who trust in the blood he spilled are part of the body of Christ. Regardless of how you look, regardless of how you worship, regardless. So, I mean, who's included in the body of Christ? What kind of people will you find in the body of Christ? Well, you'll find men and women. That, that's obvious by what's here, right? You'll find young and old. Uh, you'll find rich and poor. You'll find popular people and unpopular people. You'll find conservatives and liberals. You'll find every shade of skin color there is. You'll find every culture and ethnicity. You'll find mega church people and house church people. <gasps> You'll find traditional church people and you'll find edgy church people who like to do things a little edgy. You'll find, you'll find every kind of person you can imagine in the body of Christ. So why do we create the visions where God worked so hard to take them down? You say, well, I, yeah, I believe they're part of the body of Christ, but no, but we have our thoughts like... I'm going to pull that one back because... I don't, well, I don't, I don't want to appear to be political, so I'm going to come to a different... Because we have dividing lines. We think certain people are more Christian and part of the body of Christ than we think other people are. And that can do with politics. That can do with, with a kind of worship service churches have. That can be... We have these judgments, right? Like, oh, they're not real Christians over there. Or we create dividing lines, don't we? And my point is this, uh, all of us look different. And what you're going to find out next week is that there's a measure of grace given to every one of us, which means what? Everybody has their strength and everybody has their weakness. And it is not fair for you to compare your strength to somebody's weakness and then say they're terrible.
right? Well, we have the theological thing. We understand this, and these people are terrible. Yeah, well, those people love poor people better than you do. Right? There's, we all have a strength. And so Paul addressed this when he said, if the eye said, hey, we all should be an eye, what would the body be? Or if everybody was a foot, what, how would the body look? We need the entire body of Christ to reflect and move forward the gospel message and stop pointing out, like, like the eyes, like, oh, foot, you can't see, you're lame, you're not a real part of the body, and the foot's like, yeah, well, try to roll around where you need to go on your own. Like, right, there's, like, it's just, it, and we laugh, and it's, it's silly when we think about parts of the body arguing. And I gotta believe that God sits upstairs and thinks the same thing. You see, everybody who calls on the name of Jesus Christ and trusts that his blood covers them and washes them of their sins is loved by God, is saved by God, is a masterpiece of God and is part of the big body of Christ. And we have to walk through this world knowing who we are. That is who we are. Regardless of where your politics are, regardless of where your culture is, regardless of how you were raised, regardless, 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 that is who you are. And next week we're going to say, well, what do I do in response to knowing who I am? If this is who I am, then, then what do I do with that? And Paul, and that's the awesome part of Ephesians. He jumps from verse 3, he gets into verse 4. Now that you know who you are, this is what we need to do. And so read Ephesians uh, 4 and 5 this week if you want to get a head start. We must remember there are no God divisions under the blood of Christ. Now, is it necessary for us to, to gather in like things and worship in similar style? There's nothing wrong with gathering and, and saying, hey, we're Pentecostal people. We believe in the current moving of the Holy Spirit, and that's we gather together and worship God accordingly. And we know that across town there are folks who say, yeah, the gifts of the Spirit were, were gone when after the Bible came and they're just not needed anymore, and that's what they believe in. And so they worship. That doesn't mean that we're both not part of the body of Christ. We're all part of the body. Let me wrap this up and, and bring us to a close here this morning. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we become a new creation with a new identity. We become a new creation with a new identity. And it's out of that identity that we need to live. And it's important for us to know who we are. Loved by God, saved by Jesus Christ. We're God's masterpiece and we're part of a larger body. And it's important because one of the things that we're going to learn in the third week is the conflict and how to deal with it. Because there is a fight for your identity. And just because 
you get saved, and this is who God says you are, doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's just handed to you. You have to fight for it. And we're going to talk about that conflict and being able to maintain my identity and so it doesn't get stolen and replaced by an old self or an altered self or any of those kinds of things that when we gave ourselves to Christ, we're loved by him, saved by him, we're his masterpiece, we're a part of a larger body. And that's how we function. That's how we decide what we do with our life. That's the decisions we make and how we treat people and all of those kinds of pieces. And the struggle comes when our, our old self, right, tries to, tries to come in and we end up operating out of that. And we go, oh, I don't think I represented God too well that time. Which we all do, right? We just want that to get less and less. And that speaks to the struggle for our identity. The struggle for who are you? For those who are in Christ, this is, this is what God has for you. This is the identity he wants you to carry. The baseline that you're loved, that you're saved, that you're his masterpiece and you're part of a larger body. That is who you are. And my challenge to you this week is to, as you walk through your day, remind yourself of these four things. When you're feeling like, you're having a day that's down where, man, I'm loved by God. Nothing can separate. Man, I had a really bad day. I did this. I said that. I know it wasn't right. Lord, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that there's nothing that can separate me and you in your love. Right? We, 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 we remind ourselves of these things. We remind ourselves that I'm saved. I'm saved from from death to life? Why am I involving myself in, in behaviors and in, in language that leads to death? That's not who I am. I'm saved from that. I need, to, I need to involve myself in actions and language that lead me to life, not to death. So we remind ourselves of these things that when you're feeling like anxious or depressed or down on yourself, you're saying, I, I'm God's masterpiece. God is working on me. I am not perfect, but I am better than I was before, and I am moving in the right direction. I am his masterpiece. It's important that we know who we are. In Christ, we're so much. Amen. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your son on a rescue mission to save us. And the Lord, for those of us who are here who have been saved and tasted of your love and your goodness, Lord, we, we say thank you. For those who might be listening or in this room that have never uh, trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and in his spilled blood, uh, I, just, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would visit that would reveal yourself to them and your love for them and, Lord, that they would make a commitment to becoming a new creation in you and to receiving that gift of, of love and the gift of salvation. 
I pray, Lord, as, we, as we're on this journey of, of discipleship, of being your followers, I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of who we are in you. The world will tell us a lot of things. Our, our own flesh, our own experiences will tell us different. Uh, so many voices coming around us that try to tell us different, Lord. May we hold fast. May your Holy Spirit remind us of who we are in you. And as we hold fast to that and remind ourselves, may what we do and how we act and how we talk come from what we believe about ourselves in you. Lord, we thank you for your amazing work in our life. We thank you for, the, for your love and your salvation and, and, uh, and all the many gifts that you've given. We praise you and worship you today in your holy name. Amen. Amen, church. We love you. Uh, glad to have you online, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. Amen.